Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Friends of Sanctuary podcast. I'm Marianne Bartels, Chief Investment Strategist of Sanctuary Wealth. Today, I'm pleased to welcome our guest, Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco. We are here at Invesco's Manhattan headquarters and are very grateful for our friends at Invesco for hosting our podcast in their studio. Christina, welcome to the program. Marianne, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's really a pleasure. You know, Christina, it's been an amazing year. Most people coming into 2023 thought the first half would be pretty crummy and crappy, and the second half would get better. And here we are, the first half is over, and it's been spectacular for the equity markets. Uh, you know, bond markets, you know, are holding in there, but really spectacular returns for the equity markets. What are you advising your clients um, how to position in terms of equities for the rest of the year? Well, first, I should give the caveat, Marianne, that we try not to be too tactical um, because it's hard to market time in the shorter term. But having said that, uh, I suspect that we're going to go through a period of digestion. It makes sense, just seeing the gains that have been made, that there could even be some kind of pullback as uh, earnings come in and, and are clearly um, lower than they were. Uh, so, so this is, is likely to be a, uh, you know, there should be some kind of period where we remain in something of a, tra a trading range, some moderate pullback. But then I think by the end of this year, we're likely to see um, at least a modest improvement from where we are so that um, stocks end up uh, in, a, in a nice place given very, very muted expectations at the beginning of this year. So basically, stay invested in the market. And if you're not invested in the market, take an opportunity if we get a pullback. Absolutely. So you mentioned earnings. Um, what is your outlook for earnings? Um, you know, second quarter, you know, we're kind of in second quarter earnings. The expectation is, is earnings are going to come down, but not as much as originally forecast. And as we go into the rest of the year, earnings are ex actually expected to pick up. But there are still some people out there saying that we're still in a corporate profits recession. So what it, what, what's your outlook for earnings? Because I've always found earnings are the most important when you're looking at the market. The market always trades on earnings longer term. So it, it's, I think it's important to look at where we are in terms of the cycle. So Marian, I don't have a reason to disagree with consensus expectations, right? That, that we do see some disappointment in, in uh, 2Q earnings, um, but that we see some improvement by the end of this year. I think there's going to be a lot of differentiation, though, by sectors, by industries, and even by individual companies. For example, if we look at the retail space, there certainly have been winners and losers, and, and that's likely to continue. Um, that, that helps make the case for active management in this environment. Um, but, but let me put that sidebar aside and, and, and get back to what I think stocks are going to do in this environment. Um, certainly, uh, lower earnings do create headwinds for the stock market, but the countervailing force is yields coming down. Um, that is an important discounting factor for stocks, and typically when we see yields come down, we see multiple expansion. So, so I, I would anticipate that earnings won't have an effect 
uh, much of an effect in the near term uh, on the stock market. So there's some investors out there that have been waiting for the October lows to be tested, right? Those that have been very concerned. Do you think that's still a possibility? Because I really don't hear much now about the October lows. They definitely are in the rearview mirror. And, and I don't think we're going to see the October lows retested. Again, I think we could see a pullback that's rather modest. I don't think so. And, and there's a lot of arguments why. First of all, um, we saw a bearish sentiment peak right around when those October lows occurred. Um, in fact, if we look at AAII um, bullish sentiment, um, that was at a low in September of 2022. If we look at AAII bearish sentiment, that peaked in September of 22. If we look at the VIX, that peaked in, I think, early October of 2022. Um, so, so there are a lot of technical indicators that suggest um, we are not uh, anywhere near a place where we would retest those October lows. Now, some argue, well, in a, a typical cycle, what we see is that stocks bottom in a recession, and we haven't gotten a recession yet. So that, to me, I, I think is the, the probably the, the strongest argument I've heard for uh, retesting our lows. Um, but actually, I would argue that when we've been in higher inflation periods, um, Inflation has peaked coinciding with that recession and uh, lows in the stock market. Uh, I, I think this time around we have this sort of unusual cycle because we had a manufactured downturn with the COVID shutdowns, and when, then we had a manufactured um, recovery because of all the stimulus thrown at the economy. Um, so this is an unusual, aberrant uh, economic cycle, and it's one in which I think it's more important that inflation has peaked. That, to me, is a much stronger indicator um, than, for example, going into recession. I think that inflation peaking signals the bottom for the stock market. So I think that's very important. So how are you looking at the Fed and how are you then looking at inflation going into the rest of the year into next year? If you can elaborate a little bit more on that. Sure, sure. Well, there's a, I'm going to butcher this quote, but Jay Powell did say back in February that the disinflationary process is underway. I'm, I'm certainly paraphrasing him. That's obviously true. And uh, we see more and more signs of it every day. We have to recognize, though, that the disinflationary process is ugly. We don't always get every data point of fitting the narrative. Uh, but I think if we take a step back and look at the bigger picture, uh, inflation is coming down and significantly. Of course, it started with goods. And if we look at the New York Fed, global supply chain pressure index, that has come down dramatically. Um, but it's not just goods, uh, it's housing. We've seen certainly um, uh, some uh, downturn in housing. It may not be what everyone is looking for because it's an unusual structural environment for housing uh, where high mortgage rates have created golden handcuffs and we just don't have enough supply. People aren't putting their houses in the market. But I think the Fed is, is relatively satisfied with where we are with housing, recognizing that it's going to take time for supply to come on. The real focus for the Fed is on services. Um, and we've seen improvement in services. If we look at the Atlanta Fed wage growth tracker, um, June uh, was, a, was the 
best reading we've seen since February of 2022. Um, things are moving in the right direction. So, so the disinflationary trend is in place. The question, though, as you're asking, um, is what is the Fed going to do about it? And I think the Fed certainly has the ghost of Paul Volcker hanging over its shoulder. There is, is real fear that we could see some kind of resurgence in inflation. Um, I don't think that fear is, um, is very legitimate, but it is there. Um, and I think the FOMC does not want to make a mistake. So, um, you know, I, I, I think maybe another rate hike or two, uh, but I don't think it needs to. And, um, and my hope is that there are no more rate hikes. Um, this should be the terminal rate. And I would argue that if they want to maintain the terminal rate for a long time without any cuts, um, it's better to stop sooner rather than later. I think it's, it's easier to maintain rates as they are. Um, so so this, is a, you know, this is a relatively good, benign environment for the stock market. Well, I have to say, we actually agree with you. <laughs> well, that's good. Great minds think alike. Let's exactly, face it, Marianne. Exactly. So there is talk about inflation being structurally higher going forward. In other words, we're not going back into a true deflationary environment with all the onshoring that we're now anticipating that that will add inflationary pressures over the long term. So that it's possible maybe that we don't get down to 2%, maybe 3%. Do you have like a longer term outlook for inflation? Well, we don't have a precise number, but what I will say is that I think that is true in uh, the next few years, that we're likely to see inflation higher than what we've seen in the past decade. Now, keep in mind, we were undershooting the inflation target, right? So I think there's certainly the possibility that we overshoot, that inflation is more like 2.5%. Um, but I think actually over the longer term, if we're talking about a decade or more, um, we're probably going to get down to where we used to be not because of re-globalization, although there's certainly the potential for a, at least a little of that, but because of technological innovation. I mean, there's a lot of excitement over AI and other technologies for a reason. Uh, and I think it could certainly help um, lower inflation and get us back down to the kinds of levels we enjoyed uh, for the last several decades. Do you have a forecast for the economy? Um, some people are talking about a rolling recession. Uh, maybe we'll have a recession looking backwards, right? Because we, the, the organization that declares a recession hasn't done it yet, but it doesn't mean that they don't declare that it's already happened. Or some people are saying that we're in a soft landing, so we're not going to have a recession. And there's still some calling for a hard landing in 2023. I think, at least in my career, this has been probably the biggest challenge in trying to understand the economy. I personally would agree with you that what the Fed has done in terms of all of its stimulus really has impacted our economy in ways that we may not necessarily totally understand or know how to calibrate. So how are you looking in terms of the economy going forward? Well, that is the $64,000 question. And I would argue that we are going to experience not a soft landing, not a hard landing, but a bumpy landing. So there are going to That's be- That's a new one. I like that one. <laughs> well, because there are going to be some areas that are hit harder than others. Um, and that's just um, uh, the reality of a somewhat lopsided economy. We're not alone. Um, other developed economies 
are lopsided. Services are doing better than manufacturing. Um, and even China's recovery is a bumpy recovery, um, and it's a lopsided one. Uh, so, uh, so what I would anticipate is that we see more damage in some areas than others, um, but we're actually able to make it through without any kind of significant broad-based recession. Um, and I would anticipate the bu bumpy landing would start, um, well, we're certainly seeing a slowdown already, but, but it would take hold later this year. Uh, and having said that, though, I think it will be ra rather brief. And so we're probably going to see markets discount an economic recovery sooner rather than later because we're likely to see an economic recovery sometime in 2024. But with services so strong, it's because the consumer's still spending. And, you know, we now have a new term. We have Taylor Economics. With Taylor Swift's Eritor, they're projecting $4 billion being uh, generated through all the concert uh, goers. So as long as the consumer is spending, it does make sense that the economy can kind of chug along. Would you would you agree? With oh, that? absolutely. And the cons I mean, the consumer is two thirds of the economy, and the consumer is still spending because this is a job full downturn. So. Um, I think of the global financial crisis. The recovery was often referred to as an anemic recovery or a jobless recovery. So we're seeing something of the antithesis of this now. This is a job-full downturn. It's an anemic downturn. And uh, when you have uh, you know, full employment or close to full employment. I'd say overemployment based <laughs> on the economics I used to take. <laughs> right, but, it, but if you have it, but wage growth is moderating, it's kind of, you know, as close to a Goldilocks slowdown as you can ask for. I would agree with that. So with all of that, can you envision the Fed ever cutting rates again? Well, if we were to get rate cuts this year, it would be for a bad reason. It would be because the economy is in trouble. Now, that is certainly not my base case, but I certainly think it is a risk. We have to recognize that there have been significant lagged effects. The rule of thumb is that it takes 12 months or more for policy to show up in the economy. And so a lot of the aggressive tightening that has occurred has not yet shown up uh, in terms of impacting inflation or impacting economic growth. So I think that is that is a risk. I think it's a relatively low risk, again, given um, the employment picture in the United States. Um, but if we do get uh, rate cuts this year, it will be for a reason we do not want. That wouldn't be good for markets, I would assume. That would not, for not be markets. good for markets, especially given that we've now priced in a much rosier picture. Right? And I recently heard a Fed governor say that they expect lag effects to be 12 to 24 months. I think that's really, I used to hear 12 to 18. Now I'm hearing into 24. So 24 months. So we, that means we have a whole nother year of potential lag defects based on what this Fed governor said. Yes, although I think there's another school of thought that would argue that it might take a little, it might be a little faster. So we could maybe see nine to 12 months. So, so I think the jury is out on that. What worries me the most is the Fed governor who said um, uh, in July that she thought that there wasn't much left in terms of, of lagged effects from the policy tightening. And that's what worries me is that view, um, because that suggests we don't have to be prudent and cautious, and I think the Fed absolutely needs to be prudent and cautious. I don't necessarily disagree with that. 
Um, but let's switch and talk about the fixed income markets because the fixed income markets are very sensitive to what the Fed does. So what is your outlook for fixed income and what do you like and maybe what don't you like? So first I have to say 2022 was, um, to, to take a term from Queen Elizabeth without her accent, an annus horribilis uh, for <laughs> fixed income, right? It was a bad year for equities and it was a bad year for bonds. But what I found is that investors were particularly upset with fixed income because they didn't expect that kind of volatility. They didn't expect uh, that kind of, of downturn. It was like a 100-year flood. The good news, though, is that um, now that we've come through this, we're enjoying far more abundant yields. That is the, the, the reward that came at the end of through a very, pain. very painful period. Exactly. Um, so that creates an environment where fixed income opportunities are abundant. Uh, so, so right now, the sweet spot is investment-grade credit. But clearly, as the economy starts to discount an economic recovery, um, high yield looks more attractive. Um, but in general, I think it's a time to be very well diversified. I think opportunities um, abound. Um, floating rate uh, looks very attractive. And especially if you assume that the Fed is going to keep rates uh, at a, a relatively high level for a significant amount of time, um, that, that certainly looks attractive. And then, of course, with a falling U.S. dollar, um, looking at fixed income outside the U.S., and in particular, I'm excited about emerging market bonds, um, that's, that's an area of, of real opportunity. So where are you on 60-40? Um, I would say a couple of years ago, uh, the term was 60-40 is dead, meaning 60% equities, 40% bonds, that you, you didn't have asset allocation anymore. Where, where do you stand on 60-40? So I, I should take a step back, Marianne, and say I'm a big believer in diversification. In fact, that acronym, TINA, there is no alternative, I think should get a D on the end. Um, so it should read, there is no alternative to diversification, because I think it's important to be well diversified. But um, I'm of the camp that believes 60-40 is dead. It's more of an environment in which we want to be 50-30-20 or something like that, because we also have to have an allocation, or most should have an allocation to alternatives as well. Um, but that means being well diversified and having uh, significant exposure to fixed income and equities um, across geographies, um, as well as across sub-asset classes, but also have some exposure to alts. I have to say, diversification always wins. It does, it, over it, the long term. Over the long term, it always wins. So right now, we don't have a diversified equity market in terms of indices, and that's what it, where I want to go to tech, right? They're now calling it the Magnificent Seven. Uh, we have FANG, FANG Plus, um, the QQQs, which you have here at Invesco, which our FANG is part of in the Magnificent Seven. What are you telling your clients about how to invest in technology? And of course, as you brought up earlier, this whole story of AI and how it's going to change everything it, and, and every touch point, it, whether it's work or personal, is going to change. What, what, it, what are you saying about that? Well, I think there's certainly a short-term case for technology, but there's also a long-term case, which is even more compelling. The short-term case is that over the last few years, the technology sector has become a defensive play. Um, it has been, um, uh, you know, an, an important component of many investors' portfolios. And when we tend to find growth is scarce, we move to secular growth, and, and it's 
technology, many of the industries within tech have, have offered abundant secular growth. So, um, so that has been a very attractive play thus far in 2023. Now, uh, you know, markets are broadening out a bit, um, and we could certainly see that point when markets start to discount an economic recovery, and there could be a shift away from technology. But I do believe the case is there for long-term significant exposure to technology because of all it can do, the transformative qualities of technology. I know you started out in the business as a tech analyst, so I'm, I'm preaching to the choir but I, I will remain, uh, over the long term, a steadfast believer in technology. One of the things that we're telling our clients, um, and feel free to take this to tell your clients if you find it useful, we're saying that we're in the digital era. If you're really looking at the big macro theme that's driving our economy, it is technology. So we 100% agree with you. We just call it the digital era. Um, looking for the broadening out, um, President Biden has uh, signed a number of pieces of legislation of spending uh, on infrastructure, uh, on semiconductors, uh, the Inflation Protection Act, which has a lot of infrastructure in it. And I'm just starting to see industry analysts begin to raise their estimates for capex, capital expenditure, particularly in the industrial space. There are some calling for an American renaissance, especially with all the onshoring. Are you seeing op opportunities in this space? Absolutely. Um, but I would just give one caveat, is that I think it doesn't play out uh, entirely over the near term. This is more of a medium-term play. Um, we have to recognize that typically what we see in terms of industrial spending, infrastructure spending, um, driven by policy, is that it takes time. Um, one reason why the in the GFC, the shovel-ready projects um, were essentially repaving of roads that had just been repaved and things like that, because sometimes it takes time to work its way into the economy. But certainly what we're likely to see is, is um, performance uh, anticipate that improvement over time for those industries like industrials and materials. So um, I'm a believer in that, um, but I think investors should be patient because you could see a run-up, a pullback. Uh, I don't think it's, it's um, gonna be a clean-cut, near-term, really strong rally. I can, I can understand that. It, it, I mean, if, when you're looking at legislation getting into the economy, it can be a three to five-year run. Exactly, right. exactly. And we'll certainly see some discounting in advance of that, um, but there could be some disappointments along the way. But I, I do believe, and it's also part of just the expectation of an economic recovery, we're going to see those cyclical sectors perform well in the near term. The industrials, the, the consumer cyclicals, all those areas. So let's switch to financials, because financials are a very important component to the market, the S&P index, and to the economy. And earlier this year, we had a few banks that had ran, ran into a few problems and they were taken over. What's your outlook for banks and are you concerned that we can have another crisis pop up? So, you know, if we, if we go back and really do a postmortem on the regional banking mini crisis, now, what we find is that a lot of regional banks were fundamentally very sound, but it was just this um, a small group of banks that shared kind of a couple of different 
qualities. Um, they had uh, high net worth uh, depositors, so many, uh, you know, a good portion of their deposits were not FDIC insured, and they also had unrealized losses and securities on their portfolio. And that became the epicenter of concerns, of fear, um, and, and that's really what drove this mini banking crisis. Um, we had a, a second uh, smaller wave uh, in late April. Um, so there could certainly be issues that, that show up along the way. Um, but I think it's important to remember how quickly regulators acted. Um, there's a real understanding and a sensitivity to the fact that when central banks tighten aggressively, things can break. And so hats off to um, government entities that stepped in quickly to ring fence the issues, to create appropriate solutions. And it's not just in the U.S. We've seen that happen in other countries as well. So I, I think if we do see any kind of, of um, uh, resurgence in, in um, banking crises, however small or large, I think they will be um, dealt with very appropriately by regulators and very quickly because there are those sensitivities there. I think 2008 and 2009 taught the regulators a lot. I think they <laughs> did too, absolutely. And I think also just the advanced warning this time around. When you see such aggressive rate hikes, um, you've got to assume, you've got to be, certainly have your antennae up looking for potential issues. And the UK responded very quickly to the problems that arose last fall. Um, and I, I think the US responded very, very effectively. So for clients that are concerned, especially about another major great financial crisis, you, you don't see that, very much, nothing systemic. Nothing systemic. I think that's um, what's important. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and again, uh, what can create systemic problems is inaction by regulators. You could argue that that really was what happened during the global financial crisis, right? And so um, I think this is a very, very different situation. Now, now, there will be headwinds for all banks just because of net interest margins, because of where we are in terms of an inverted yield curve, but that's natural. That's part of the cycle for banks. And they position for that, at least the larger banks do. Exactly, exactly. So another concern that's in banking is commercial real estate. Are you expecting a shoe to drop anywhere within the, the banking system because of concerns about commercial real estate, particularly office? I think it's really the office component that most people are concerned about, about not all of commercial real estate. Right. So, you know, the rule of thumb, you know, the, the generalization is that office space is only about 30% of commercial real estate, give or take a few percentage points. Um, so it is not, um, not the majority even of commercial real estate. And certainly there are concerns with that particular space. But we have to recognize and kind of look at, at the different issues facing uh, office space. Well, first of all, it's the pandemic and work from home. Well, a lot of industries have changed, uh, have shifted their policies. So I think we have seen the trough in work from home. Um, now more people are being required to get back in the office. So the office space situation is looking moderately better. Um, but let's look beyond that. And of course, there are differences by city, by state, all those things. Um, but also, um, the real issue, you know, one of the significant issues facing uh, office space is that loans are coming due. 
Um, but if you actually look at the numbers, a lot of the loans are coming due in the back half of 24, in 25. Um, that could be a very different rate environment and lending conditions could be much better. Um, Rates might be lower is exactly. really what you're saying. And also, I think there's another important point to make, which is that um, risks don't arise without opportunities. And what we're seeing now is a lot of opportunities for private credit as a result of some banks perhaps shying away um, from, uh, from financing commercial real estate. Uh, so there are, wherever there are risks, there also are opportunities that present themselves. Are there any other sectors that you're interested in or sectors that you really would avoid? Well, uh, you know, I, I'm a big believer in looking at things over the long term, being positioned for the long term. So that means exposure to all, uh, all the sectors. But if we want it to be tactical, uh, I think right now uh, it's, it's, uh, it's still a time where having some, of a, some kind of a defensive posture makes sense recognizing that we're going through bouts of risk on. Uh, and so at a certain point, though, what we're going to see is markets start to discount that economic recovery. So for those who want to get positioned in advance, it's probably time to start increasing exposure to value, to cyclicals, to smaller caps. Um, those are likely to perform better unless uh, something happens um, that is unforeseen um, that causes you know, really significant economic damage that changes that outlook. So the dollar has been very weak here. Um, do you think that actually can benefit earnings? Oh, absolutely. For the multinational U.S. companies, um, for those sectors that derive a, a significant portion of their revenue from outside the U.S., like technology, but not limited to technology. So certainly some companies can really benefit, and, and I think uh, in general it should help earnings season. And what about international markets? Any views on equities on the international markets? Well, if we look at it from a purely valuation perspective, there are a lot of opportunities outside the U.S. And then, of course, you have that tailwind of a weakening U.S. dollar. Uh, and, and I think there are, are uh, to me, just uh, significant opportunities, I think specifically uh, about Asia EM. Uh, a lot of the emerging markets countries are done hiking rates. And they're starting to see some pressure taken off for those that have debt um, that is U.S. dollar denominated. Um, servicing costs are going down. Um, and I think they're going to benefit, at least Asia EM is likely to benefit from the reopening of China. Now, I talked about the U.S. having a bumpy landing. China is have a, having a bumpy uh, opening, a bumpy recovery. Um, but it is still a recovery. And I think we're going to see some policy stimulus thrown at the Chinese economy, which is going to benefit Asia EM. Uh, so to me, that's, that's an attractive opportunity. And not just Asia EM equities, but some Asia EM debt, um, but European equities and UK equities. Um, they're a little behind the U.S. in terms of um, there are more hikes that are likely to occur. Um, but um, there are also opportunities once we get to or once they get close to the end of their rate hike cycles. So we want to get positioned in advance of what could be a significant rallies. So following your diversification, you can maybe add a little bit of exposure of things that are outside of the United States. Oh, absolutely. And even more than a little. Um, this is a time, you know, when I talk about diversification and, and uh, there is no alternative to diversification in this environment, 
I mean international diversification as well. This is a time uh, to take some uh, some of the great gains that that. Um, that investors have made in the U.S. and potentially look elsewhere. Um, and we shouldn't overlook Europe, uh, the recovery thus far. Uh, I shouldn't say the recovery, the economy thus far has been more resilient than expected, um, even the U.K., um, but recognizing that there are more rate hikes to come there. When I'm with clients, and especially when I'm doing uh, like seminars and presentations, um, in the Q&A, I always get a question on geopolitics. There's always somebody concerned about something going on, whether it's here in the United States or somewhere outside of the United States. What do you tell your clients when they're setting their asset allocation? How do they incorporate uh, geopolitics? Or should they? I don't think they should because so often, especially if we're looking at the long run, geopolitical risks uh, don't matter. Um, certainly they can impact the near term for sure. They can trigger sell-offs. Um, and in fact, we saw... Um, uh, Certainly some pressure on stocks as a result of the tariff wars uh, that started a few years ago. But overall, it really doesn't have any kind of material impact over the longer term. So I think most investors should really try to put blinders on uh, and not pay attention to geopolitical risks. Just so you know, that's the same answer I give. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Then I know I'm in good company. Um, President Biden is trying to forgive student loans. And of course, there have been people concerned about consumer spending if the students have to go back to paying their loans. Where are you if, if, if Biden can get this passed? Is this positive or negative? Or if the students have to pay, is it truly a negative for the markets? I think it could create a headwind for the U.S. economy. Um, just if, if you look at the estimates on what the average student loan payment uh, would be if, if, in, if or when student loans are reinstated, um, it's something close to $400 a month. That is a big bite out of disposable income. And so I think it would certainly uh, impact uh, consumer discretionary spending. Um, it would likely have longer-term effects just because it will likely delay household formation. There are a lot of implications. Um, but, uh, but I think all in all, while it would have a negative impact, the impact would be relatively de minimis. So it doesn't derail your thesis on markets? It doesn't derail my thesis, no. So next year we have a presidential election. And do you have any views on presidential election years for markets? Well, typically, um, we know the third year in a presidential cycle tends to be the best year history has shown. So, so um, far, it's doing pretty darn good. Exactly. <laughs> so, so maybe we can revisit this at the end of this year and, and, uh, and uh, rest on our laurels. Uh, so, you know, the, the fourth year is not as remarkable, typically. Um, but, um, but, you know, you could always get some short-term rallies, some short-term volatility. I try not to pay attention to that. Uh, I think what's far more important is what's happening with monetary policy, and what's happening uh, in the overall economy. So stay away from the geopolitics. Absolutely. Fun to talk about, though. It always <laughs> makes for interesting conversation, but let's, I think, better at cocktail parties than anywhere else. Exactly. So I'd like to pivot a little bit, and this is my favorite section of the podcast, where I really get down to really talk about how an individual got into financial services. How did you, especially as a woman, find your path to Wall Street? 
Well, that is a great question. And uh, what I would say is that I've always had an interest since college. I was lucky enough to go to a college that had um, an investment society. And uh, what they did was we took advantage. We were in Boston. We took advantage of a lot of portfolio managers being in Boston. Um, so we had regular speakers. Um, but we also were given the opportunity to manage a small portion of the college's endowment which required some very serious attention and um, cases that needed to be made about how to invest that. Um, so we became sort of um, um, analysts, um, uh, self-made analysts, and um, macroeconomists, and strategists. And it was an awful lot of fun. I had, um, when I was in high school though, I had always envisioned going to law school. I was president of the student body and, and really thought my career was in litigation. So I, I wound up going to law school, loved it. But once I started practicing, I realized what an awful profession for my personality because I would become so depressed with you know cases where people are fighting over things and I wanted to be in a place where I could feel good that I was helping with outcomes as opposed to contributing to dissension and and um, just uh, the uh, in many cases the loss of assets and uh, so so um, I was able to pivot um, from from law early in my career to financial services I never looked back uh, I did my MBA at night realizing that I needed to know a lot more than I, I knew when I started and um, and luckily enough, um, there was there were firms that were willing to hire me, and I've been incredibly grateful to be in financial services. That's a phenomenal story, and I think you said something very important. A lot of people don't understand what we do in this business is actually helping others. Um, it, it's a misunderstood or it's not taught, but we really do help people to really learn how to invest and save so they can achieve their goals. Absolutely, I think it's so important to get guidance, get education. We can always learn. I, I feel I always need to learn, but I also love helping to educate and guide others. And it's all about better outcomes. I, I agree, totally agree. Um, my aunt, my Aunt Bernadette, went to Wall Street in 1956. Not too many people roaming uh, Wall Street back then. And her, she had a phenomenal career. And before she passed away, she was still concerned that the, the representation for women was still very low. She's like, Marianne, I cannot believe that women have not progressed more. What are some of the, maybe the, the, the guidance that you can provide for maybe some young women out there that are still trying to figure out what they're trying to do or they're early in their financial career um, to really encourage them to stay or come into our business? Well, that is a great question, and I think it's one that many people have chewed on for a long time. If you look at the studies, what it shows is that many women mid -career, early to mid-career leave financial services. And it usually tends to be around starting families and not feeling as though they can manage both. Um, I'm living proof that you can actually manage both. Now, I will tell you, I do both imperfectly. Um, <laughs> uh, I've never been a perfectionist, which has helped. Uh, there's no balance. A balance should be out of the equation. 
<laughs> we, 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 things will move around. Exactly. Maybe the long run is balanced. Exactly. But there's a, at, at times, you know, you're you're <laughs> borrowing from Paul to pay Peter, and vice versa. And and so I, I think women should feel comfortable saying that I can choose this career and have and and still be able to create a flexible existence for myself. And actually, I think that was one of the benefits, um, as horrible as the, the pandemic was, one of the benefits was recognizing that there can be more flexibility. And so even if um, people are returning to work only three or four days a week, that gives a little more flexibility than when they worked five days a week. And I think um, employers are, are more understanding that people can work in different kinds of environments. And, and so um, to me, that is one huge step. I think if we look at the numbers a decade from now, we'll see improvement in terms of the ranks of women in financial services. I also think roles like financial advisor are such, um, such great roles um, for those who are multitasking, who want more flexibility. So there's a lot to be done. I think perhaps it's, it's more about tooting our own horns about what a great industry we're in. I, I, I definitely agree. One of the things that I value very much is uh, mentoring. I, I think that's another thing that all individuals need is, is mentorship. Is there any t mentorship guidance that you want to offer the viewers? Well, that is, that is a great question. Um, Marianne, first of all, um, I think about you. Uh, I met you as, uh, you know, much earlier in my career, and you were a wonderful role model. You know, you are a legend in the industry, and you were even then. And, um, and just seeing women in positions like this can provide some level of mentorship and encouragement. But I do think it's important to, for women to be willing to talk to young women who are just entering the industry um, in small ways and big ways. I'm a big believer in formal mentorship programs. We have one at Invesco that I've participated in and I've loved. Um, I've also participated in mentorship programs outside my firm. Um, so I think being willing to give of your time in ways big and small is really, really important. And recognizing that there are going to be times in our career when we won't have as much time and other times when we'll have more time. But I agree with you completely that it is just so critical uh, to be a good mentor and, and a good role model. Well, I do want to say thank you for the compliment. I, I don't know what it really means to be a legend, but I've heard this before. But I love what I do, and I love helping and people. And it shows, and it shows. Oh, thank you. And, and I think as women, and, and this is my personal opinion, some of us have a nurturing side. And in this business, sometimes you need a little bit of nurturing and a little bit of hand-holding. Oh, absolutely. Right? Especially when those markets go down. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Invesco. Um, what, what, can you tell me about your company and maybe some of the products that you offer? Oh, absolutely. Well, Invesco is a wonderful firm, and I'm, I'm so grateful to have been here more than six and a half years. Um, what attracted me to the firm and what I think attracts clients uh, is that we are broad. Um, we are well diversified. We have um, equity products. We had fixed income products. We have alternatives products like real estate, like private credit. I mean, we really run the gamut and we also offer different vehicles. We've got separately managed accounts. We've got ETFs. You name it, we have it. Um, but what's really important is that um, everything we do, we think about the client. Um, it is so important to wake up every day saying, 
what, what do clients need from us? What can we do to make clients' lives better? And I think we really live that in Invesco. Um, and and uh, just as, as proof of that, um, we have uh, a program called Total Client Experience, um, which offers portfolio analytic tools, um, portfolio customization, um, which offers advisor education. Um, what we try to do is provide a complete uh, total client experience. And, uh, and I think we've, for those who've actually um, seen or, or participated in it, I, I think they've benefited and, and hopefully would give us a, a good grade if we ask them. Well, I've, I've worked with Invesco for many years. Um, you've been friends to me for many, many years. And for that, I, I'm very, very grateful. And Christina, it has just been just wonderful having this conversation with you. It has just been uh, delightful, enlightening, and inspiring. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in. Thank you for watching or listening to the Friends of Sanctuary podcast. Tune in next month to be sure not to miss out on the next installment of the series. Securities offered through Sanctuary Securities, Inc., member FINRA, SIPIC. Advisory services offered through Sanctuary Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Sanctuary Securities, Inc. and Sanctuary Advisors, LLC are wholly owned subsidiaries of Sanctuary Wealth Group, LLC.